This morning, I'm very excited to announce that we have reached a unanimous agreement with the Presbytery Resolution Team on the terms of our financial settlement so that we can leave our current denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, with our property and our assets intact. I know this has been a concern for many people, so I want to assure you that the folks, uh, our folks did an excellent job during the negotiations, and there was a healthy Christ-like spirit of compromise and goodwill on all sides. We will go through the details of the settlement at the upcoming Congregational Forum scheduled for next Sunday night, May 17th, and then also on Monday and Tuesday nights, the 18th and the 19th. You can get the times and the places of those meetings in your bulletin this morning. I really hope that you'll come to one of them so that you can be fully informed about what we're doing as a congregation. So that leaves just two hurdles that we have to jump uh, to complete the dismissal process. The first is the very important congregational vote on June 14th. That's only 34 days from today. If you're a church member, you need to be there to vote on the 14th, if at all possible. We'll have one combined worship service that day for everybody, members and non-members alike, under the big tent in the parking lot. Members will have to sign in to vote, so registration will begin at 9 a.m. and then the actual worship service at 10 a.m. This will be a historic moment in the life of our congregation, so please, please be a part of shaping our future. The second hurdle comes the following week on June 23rd when members of the Elizabeth Presbytery have to vote to ratify our agreement with the resolution team. And they're the ones who actually dismiss us. That's the final hurdle. And it's one over which we have very little control. So we will need lots of prayer for that meeting to go smoothly. The Liberty Corner Presbyterian Church will also be voted on for dismissal that same night. So it's going to be quite a significant meeting. Please contact me or enter the, of, of the elders if you have any questions or concerns at this point. Thank you. All right, let's switch gears, turn our attention to God's Word this morning. Our scripture comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, where the Apostle Paul continues using the imagery of a veil that we talked about last week. This time he uses it to describe a spiritual blindfold and why it is that so many people cannot seem to understand what the good news of Jesus Christ is all about. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. For the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Amen. Thanks be to God. Last weekend, our junior high mission team of about 70 students and adult leaders was in Philadelphia, and five teams kind of spread out and intersected with over a dozen Christian missions in the inner city, including some shelters that house mothers with small children. 
At each of those shelters, our students led Bible clubs where they shared about Jesus while playing and laughing and just being with the, the kids. Towards the end of one of those clubs, a little girl who had spent a lot of time with one of our eighth grade girls looked up to her and asked very poignantly, are you really being nice to me or are you just pretending? Wow. Talk about a powerful question. So honest, so sincere. Are you really being nice to me or are you just pretending? Through that one question, you can just feel all the disappointment in that little girl's life. All the rejection, the broken promises, the sense of abandonment. How can the gospel of Jesus Christ make sense to a little girl in a homeless shelter? It can only make sense when it comes through someone whose caring is real. A person like that eighth grade girl whose faith was authentic. That's why our sermon theme on 2 Corinthians is so important. To get real, living authentically for Christ. In sharing your faith with people, you know, it's kind of like building a bridge from your world to theirs. But as the saying goes, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And that's true in every area of life, not just in sharing your faith, in every area of relationships, whether it's business or sales or, or really in any conversation. If people don't sense your sincerity, if you come across as being you know, fake or phony, they're never going to listen to what you have to say. Who you are is just as important as the message you're trying to deliver. So people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And that's why getting involved in missions is so important for a local church. I don't mean sending money. I mean church people getting personally involved in serving, participating personally in serving the world around us in Christ's name. If a church doesn't demonstrate real involvement in serving the needs of the world, people outside the church will never be open to the message of the gospel. In our day, missions validates the message. Missions validates or brings credibility to the message. When people hear about how you built a house in, in Mexico for a deserving family or how you got involved in providing malaria nets for people in Malawi or how you went into Rahway prison to minister to the inmates, all of a sudden their ears perk up. Uh, you serving creates an openness. Your willingness to serve creates this openness to hear the rest of the story. And this is very important. Because just serving isn't enough. Just caring isn't enough. We need both missions and the message. Both caring missions and the unique message of Jesus Christ because one without the other is half a bridge. One without the other only gets you halfway there. Just doing good deeds isn't enough because any group can do good deeds. Serving the poor isn't the exclusive province of, of Christians. I mean, Mormons do good deeds. Scientologists can feed the hungry. The Red Crescent of Islam can do great relief work and disaster recovery. So, and there are secular humanitarian groups, they just abound. So for Christians, just doing good deeds can only take you so far. It's only building half a bridge if caring is separated from sharing the gospel. A week ago, our church staff team served on the relief bus in the Chelsea section of New York City. It was so much fun to work together. We fed close to 500 people from street homeless to elderly folks who live on fixed incomes and low-income housing. It was, it was great to be able to meet their practical needs, but it was even better because it was coupled with a sensitive sharing of the gospel. I got to pray one-on-one -on -one with 60 to 70 people and to minister to them in Christ's name, and they were very open to receive those prayers. 
Missions helps authenticate the message. But here's the thing. Even the most caring approach doesn't guarantee a positive response to the gospel. Even the most positive, loving, sensitive, compassionate sharing of the gospel doesn't guarantee that the person will believe or respond to the invitation to go deeper with God. There's no guarantee. And that is what's so frustrating for Christians who actively share their faith. What is so frustrating for people in full-time Christian work, you can do your very best. Be the most loving person on the planet. Run the best programs and still get a blank stare in return when it comes to that person you know, actually moving in the direction of faith in Christ. Paul understands this frustration. The frustration of people not responding to the gospel when it's clearly presented. Look at how he says it in verse 1. He says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. He has a ministry of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, but he's facing a real uphill battle. Introducing the message of this unknown Palestinian preacher named Jesus to the vast Roman Empire. I mean, back in chapter 3, he's just been talking about all the people who don't see the truth of Christ. And yet somehow, he is able to hold his head up and be bold in his ministry. He says he does not lose heart in his ministry. But then, doesn't that sort of mean that there were others who were losing heart? I mean, I don't know what it was really like to face the pressures of Paul's day as a preacher of the gospel, but I do know the pressures pastors face today. Pressures to grow the church in an increasingly secular environment. Pressures to keep people happy. Pressures to raise the money and run the programs and keep things afloat. Pressures to be, you know, successful. And I've seen what can happen to pastors or to congregations who are feeling the pressure when few people respond. When the church starts to shrink. When church leaders can get pressured into a couple of things. First, they get pressured into trying gimmicks to attract a crowd. Put on a show. Do things purely for publicity in order to get your name or your picture in the newspaper. Use gimmicks to attract people. A large church in my hometown in Indiana once advertised wisely that they were going to reenact the feeding of the 5,000 by handing out free McDonald's fish sandwiches while Ronald McDonald parachuted into their parking lot. And guess what? That stuff works. It will draw a crowd. If that's your goal, to draw a crowd, then gimmicks really work, and maybe we should you know, give away a new iPad to every first-time visitor. Or I should promise to you know, shave my head if we get to 1,000 people in church membership. I mean, gimmicks do work, but do they make disciples? Do people really respond to Christ that way? Yes, some do, but is that really the message Jesus wants us to send? The problem with gimmicks is that they have to get bigger and bigger. You have to top whatever you did before or it's not good enough. People come to expect it. And then you have to entertain them with bigger and better. If this year we give away iPads, next year we're going to have to give away Apple wristband you know, phones. It all ratchets up with gimmicks. You, know, you have to wow people even more. Otherwise, they lose interest and they move on to the next church with the trendier gimmick. The other thing people feel pressured to do when they aren't getting the response that they're looking for is to modify the message. Lots of people doing this today. Let's just shave off the rough edges of the gospel. Let's modify the message just a bit 
make it easier for people to swallow. Let's, let's downplay the moral elements of following Christ, okay? Let's make it more in tune with our cultural trends. Let's soften the demands of Jesus. Just give people what they want. Let's get with the program, be relevant. And by that they mean let's compromise on what the Bible teaches. There is always the pressure to dilute the authority of the Bible or to manipulate the message to make it seem more agreeable because then maybe, hopefully, more people will come to church. Those are very real pressures. When churches are declining, when a pastor's ego or a pastor's job is on the line, when financial pressure is abound, I mean, honestly, I feel all those pressures, especially right now. You know, I feel the financial one because we are falling behind in our giving at this crucial time in the history of our congregation. We do need people to step up their giving, both now and throughout the summer. We do. So I feel all those pressures, but look at what Paul says in verse 2. He says, rather we have renounced secret, secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I like the way this verse is paraphrased in the J.B. Phillips uh, version of the New Testament. Phillips says, we use no hocus pocus, no clever tricks, no dishonest manipulation of the word of God. We speak the plain truth. Did you hear that? Paul is under pressure, but he's not going to resort to gimmicks or in any way compromise the integrity of his message. So what are we to do when we face this vast reality, or this reality that vast numbers of people do not realize the seriousness of their situation with God? When people do not seem interested in the gospel or open to faith in Christ? In his classic book, Almost 100 years ago, Lewis Berry Chafer wrote about this issue uh, in his book called True Evangelism. Chafer saw that the same problems existed back then. Vast numbers of normally intelligent people who are usually quick to respond to, to something that will enhance their lives or, or bring them greater fulfillment or meaning or hope. But he says it's like the spell of indifference and neglect falls over them towards spiritual things toward the things that, that would secure for them a right relationship with God. They can listen to all the benefits of God's grace and the blessings of knowing Christ in this life and in the next. They can listen, but without any response. They're just kind of glazed over. Good people, warm-hearted, kind people, full of tenderness towards human suffering and need, but their sinful situation before God and their need for a Savior is rejected. They go to sleep at night without any worry over their relationship with God, and they wake the next day free from any thoughts of obligation to God. Even the most careful presentation of the truth, the most caring and loving appeal, has no effect. It's like water off a duck's back. And Paul gives us the reason why, here in verse 3, he writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's a real spiritual battle going on all around us all the time. There is real evil at work in our world. There is real enemy at work in our world that the Bible names as Satan, the God, small g, of this age. 
the fallen archangel who brought temptation and evil to earth, the one expelled by, from heaven by the archangel Michael, who first worked his deviousness in tempting our human parents in the Garden of Eden. The God of this age is at work imposing a spiritual blindness on our planet. Schaefer defines it this way. Blinding by the evil one is a universal incapacity to comprehend the way of salvation. It is imposed on humanity by the arch enemy of God in order to hinder the purposes of God. Folks, we need to recognize the reality of spiritual blindness. It's invisible, but it is all around us. And normally when you try to share your faith, you kind of hit two boundaries right away that you have to work through with folks. Intellectual objections and then emotional problems. People have questions. What about creation? What about pain and suffering? What about other religions? And those are all legitimate questions that need to be discussed. And as a maturing Christian, you should be prepared to answer many of those questions. You need to know your own faith well enough so that you can talk about it intelligently. So maybe you need to do some homework, do some study on those key questions. Read or listen to podcasts by Ravi Zacharias or Lee Strobel or Josh McDowell, who've all produced great resources on, on all those topics. Or read classic books like The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. There are good answers to all those questions. But then you get to the next barrier, emotional issues. People are complicated. Maybe they had a bad experience at a former church, or they had a bad experience with someone who claimed to be a Christian, or maybe their family had just an unhealthy religious thing going on at home. Or maybe they, they just have deep emotional needs, and that requires a lot of listening and patience and sincere friendship. There are no quick answers for those folks because often there's pain that, that cuts pretty deep. So they need healing, and you can be a part of that healing. But even after the intellectual questions are debated and the hurts are healed, people may still not give their lives to Christ because there's a third barrier, and that's the human will. And it is at this point that spiritual blindness is at work. There is a veil, a shroud, a, a blindfold, and they do not see the need to turn to Christ. Something just holds them back, and maybe you've talked about the Lord with someone for years and years, and you still see no positive movement towards Christ, no response. Well, don't get mad at them. There's a spiritual blindness over their hearts, and it's powerful. Paul describes God's call on his life this way in Acts 26, 17. God said to him in a vision, I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. People need to have their eyes opened. They need a divine illumination to counteract the spiritual darkness that has settled over their soul. This, this can only be accomplished by a divine work of the Holy Spirit. No amount of talking will do it. No amount of caring will, will do it. They must be drawn by God or illumined by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said so in John 6.44. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. God's light has to shine into their hearts. That's what kind of flips the switch. That's how the light goes on in the soul. God has to do a supernatural work to release them from their blindness. In that way, Dr. Chafer says that they are divinely prepared for an intelligent choice of Christ as Savior. This is the initial work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. 
In John 16, 8 through 15, Jesus describes the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. You see, don't blame them, the people who don't respond to the gospel. They are unable to respond without the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. This incapacity or blindness is their natural state. It requires the work of the Spirit to shake people loose, to convince them of their sin. They do not comprehend the way of life in Christ because his light has not yet dawned on them. The gospel demands a work of Christ through the Spirit to open their hearts to hear. Satanic blindness is countered by divine illumination. So what's your role in all this? You do have a role. You have a very important role. You need to pray for people by name. Intercessory prayer is the most important thing you can do. Yes, try to answer their questions. Yes, care sincerely and consistently. But if you're not praying, there won't be much movement towards Christ. You are in a spiritual battle, and your only weapon is prayer. The cause of a person's spiritual indifference is not intellectual. It is not emotional. It is spiritual blindness affecting their will. The intellectual and the emotional, they're only symptoms of the deeper thing. So you must understand the cause of their indifference, a spiritual veil over the hearts that can only be lifted by intercessory prayer for the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. There will be no complete response of faith until the way of Christ is made plain to them by the enlightening work of the Spirit. All evangelism begins with prayer. It must be saturated with prayer. No human effort, no gimmick can take the place of prayer. Schaefer writes this, The reason for human intercession for the divine plan has not been wholly revealed, but repeated statements in the Bible show it is a necessary link in the chain that carries divine energy into the impotent souls of men. If you ask me, would I rather have a thousand people going door to door to share their faith throughout the surrounding neighborhoods, or would I rather have a thousand people committed to daily prayer, I'll take the prayers every time. Praying people. God honors the prayers of his people, and he invites us into this exciting place of cooperation and partnership with him in this great project of human transformation. We don't make it happen. We cooperate with God. No spirit-filled person should rush ahead without prayer. That's where the boldness comes from. Praying for people has some practical benefits, too. If you're praying for someone, it makes you more sensitive, more aware, better equipped to listen and respond. That's why it's often said you should talk with God about people before you talk with people about God. Let me say that again. You should talk with God about people before you talk with people about God. People are in the grips of spiritual blindness. The antidote for that is the Holy Spirit's illumination. Your role in that is intercessory prayer. That's how God's light will shine into the darkness of a person's heart. Start praying this week. Let's pray. Lord God, we all know people who seem to be gripped in spiritual blindness, who really have no interest, no desire, no 
reason in their minds to turn to you. And so we want to be committed to praying for them starting today. Maybe, Lord, we'll make a list of those people that are particularly on our minds, and we're going to pray for them every day and not give up and pray for your spirit to begin that convicting work. Start to make them uncomfortable. Kind of rattle their cage a little bit, and through their circumstances, open them up to their need for Jesus Christ, Lord. Help us to be people who pray. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.